BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. On this episode of Newt's World, I did believe, and I publicly stated a number of times, that I thought there would be a red wave or even a red tsunami in the November midterm elections. I was wrong. And I spent the last several weeks researching and analyzing the midterms to understand how the outcome of the election was so different from what I had expected. And I wanted to talk about the midterms in more detail with someone I've known for 40 years and have talked about politics for all those 40 years. My partner in the 1994 contract with America campaign, my very, very close personal friend, Joe Gaylord. Joe has served as president of Chesapeake Associates, a political consulting firm. He's worked with me personally as a senior political advisor. In 1994, he was named campaign manager of the year by the American Association of Political Consultants, an award he has shared with me for our successful campaign, regaining the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. He also served as the executive director of the National Republican Congressional Committee from 1982 till 1989. And during his six years at the Republican National Committee, he developed the RNC's Campaign Management College, a guidebook for candidates. He also wrote a terrific book called Flying Upside Down, which was really advice for candidates who are running for the first time. And later he wrote a book called Flying the Right Side Up, which is for incumbents seeking re-election. So he's been remarkably productive He helped bring in an entire generation of pollsters and consultants and professionals. In addition, he and I are working on a book for next year on the march to the majority, outlining what we did over that long period to finally get a majority for the first time in 40 years in 1994. Joe, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. I'm delighted to do it, Newt. This will be interesting because I still don't know what happened. This conversation will be genuinely exploring what happened. You know, the 2022 midterm turnout almost matched 2018's historic high and was significantly higher than 2014. According to 538's U.S. Elections Project, this was a huge vote, and the youth turnout was the second highest in the last three decades. 
And according to Tisch College's Center for Information Research, 27% of young people aged 18 to 29 cast a vote. And that vote among young people preferred Democrats by a 28-point margin. So I'm curious, how do you assess the campaign? I think there are several factors that were involved in the results that neither one of us actually expected, that we probably, on reflection, could have spent more time trying to figure out. Part of it was a messaging problem on the part of Republican candidates. I think part of it was a delivery problem on getting the message across. And part of it was an organizational problem with not being able to actually get and encourage the number of Republicans to the polls that we would want to get there. One of the things I noticed, though, was kind of a surprise. People 18 to 29 were the only age group in which a strong majority supported Democrats, which is, I think, on election day or the day after election, nobody realized that. In fact, people were making all sorts of assumptions about the impact of abortion, et cetera. But in fact, that wasn't what happened. Now, I've been told that in a number of places, colleges and universities were actually giving students extra credit on their final grade if they would go vote. And so you got apparently huge turnout in places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, for example. In the Pennsylvania Senate race, where John Fetterman won by a 3% margin, young people, 18 to 29, preferred him 70 to 28 which is pretty remarkable. Voters over 45 preferred Dr. Oz. So a lot of analysis that might have been that Oz was from out of state or whatever, young people were probably the least likely to worry about that, but the most likely to vote Democrat. Do you have any sense of what's happening in that sense in terms of an age split rather than an ethnic or geographic split? Yeah, I think it is. We have during the past several elections suffered at the number of Gen Zs and millennials voting for Republican candidates. And that would be substantiated in almost all post-election research and analysis. The point is, whether or not we are actually reaching those voters in a way mechanically with our campaign messages. And the second thing is whether we are talking about something that they think is important to them. And my sense is right now that that is really the bigger problem that we face with the 18 to 29-year-old voters. Republican candidates are not necessarily addressing issues that they think are most important to them. Yeah, I was struck. We met with our own folks at Gingrich 360, and the people who are Gen Z said basically, you know, Republicans don't pay any attention to us. I had thought that Biden was being goofy when he met with the communicators on TikTok But in fact, for people who are in that age group, TikTok is vastly more important, say, than Fox News. And was a sign that he at least cared about one of the worlds that they were in. I have to say, one of the things that was a shock to me, after all the initial pontificating and analyzing and what have you, it did turn out, according to the Cook Political Report, that we led the Democrats by about 3.5 million votes for the House. I mean, didn't you find that surprising given the outcome? Yes, I did. Although, remember, back in the 80s, Republicans significantly outpolled Democrats in numbers of actual voters. And it has a lot to do with redistricting, actually, and where resources were placed in the campaigns. 
in those districts that are overwhelmingly red, I think we got overwhelming support. In those that were more marginal, we got less support. In total, we should feel pretty good, actually, about getting three and a half million more votes than Democrats did this cycle. The question is whether they were distributed in the right places by the emphasis that we place on campaigns in the right areas. Well, and of course, part of that was affected by redistricting. I mean, if I had told you last January that the margin of the Republican majority might be New York and California, you would have thought I was crazy. And yet, we did pick up seats in New York. We did pick up seats in California while we were losing incumbents. That's exactly right. I would add Florida, redistricting-wise. Governor DeSantis vetoed the Republican legislature's plan for the congressional districts and then went about the design of his own for congressional districts, and that added four Republican seats. <laughs> and when you're looking at a majority of like four seats in the U.S. House, Florida, New York, California were all very important for making sure that that happened. And I think in that sense that DeSantis deserves a lot of credit. I mean, the size of his margin was astonishing. You had been telling me all along since you live in Florida now that he was going to do well. And of course, we've both known Charlie Crist since he was originally a Republican before he became an independent, then a Democrat. Crist was a weak candidate, but still, the scale of the DeSantis victory was really historic, I think. It was truly amazing. I mean, I believe he won in Florida by 19 percent or more, maybe closer to 20 percent. And Marco Rubio won the U.S. Senate race by 15 or 16 percentage points as well. When you have that at the top of the ticket, you certainly have a real head of steam for Republican candidates further down the ballot. And you saw that everywhere. But there were only three counties in Florida that went for a Democratic candidate, were Charlie Chris. That'd be Broward, which is the Fort Lauderdale area. And that would be Alachua, which is the Gainesville area, University of Florida, and Tallahassee, which is the seat of state government, and Florida State University. And the rest of the state all voted Republican. And that held pretty true for the U.S. Senate race as well. And of course, part of the difference was that you had, with Chris, a weak candidate who had switched back and forth and who, frankly, in the ads I saw, just looked old and kind of like out of it. But Rubio was up against a first-class opponent who, at least on paper, looked like she might beat him. Well, that's right. And she outspent him by about $20 million in the campaign. In the Tampa Bay area, where I am, you just saw endless numbers of Demings commercials that were almost all about abortion or Marco's attendance record in committee hearings in the Senate. So... It was a decisively, you know, on the Democrats' part, it was a decisively negative campaign. And they were doing negative, negative, negative advertising. And you had a lot more positive stuff on the Republican side, both on the DeSantis record and the things and the accomplishments that Marco Rubio had gotten through the United States Senate. Rubio, who had been Speaker of the House and had been an effective senator and a presidential candidate, it was a little hard to spend your energy trying to convince people he didn't show up. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, I just think it wasn't believable that people probably think well, those mustn't have been very important meetings. By the way, it's interesting, and I've been talking with our good friend Randy Evans, more than 400,000 ballots have already been cast in Georgia, and Governor Kemp has clearly weighed in. 
Randy sent me a picture of his precinct that was voting in Smyrna, which is an area that's 55, 45 African-American. And the people voting today were overwhelmingly white. And if that's accurate and reflected across the state, I think that the African-American turnout is something like eight to 10 points below what it should be at this point. But we'll see what happens. But I also think Walker is being helped a great deal by the University of Georgia being the number one team in the country. I think that's going to be a very interesting election on Tuesday night. No question, Georgia is a football state. And Heisman Trophy winners and the all-time greatest do well. You know, the last time they were undefeated, Herschel Walker played at the university. They were undefeated this year in the regular season, the first time since Herschel. So that plus Vince Dooley, before he passed away, had cut a very emotional, very powerful commercial. Vince Dooley was the great and deeply loved head coach at the University of Georgia for whom Herschel played. And I think that's also had a positive effect. We'll, we'll see what happens on election day. He's being outspent by Warnock by about three to one by Democratic Senator Warnock. But as you know, sometimes the ads don't quite matter because people just shrug them off. That is true. I mean, you will remember back in the 1994 campaign, Republican candidates were outspent overwhelmingly by Democratic candidates for the U.S. House and for the Senate. And we ended up with huge victories across the board compared to where we were after the 92 election. That day on September 17th, 1994, when you and I were about to leave on a trip to go west to do fundraising for candidates, and we had Dan Meyer, who was our chief of staff and is now Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff, and Steve Hanser, our old friend, and Kerry Knott, who was Dick Army's chief of staff. And I said, well, are we going to plan for minority leader or are we going to plan for a speaker? And you said, well, you'd better plan for a speaker because you're going to be. And Meyer promptly said, wait a second, you have to explain that before we go any further. So for the first hour of the flight, you literally went from Maine to Hawaii. And in every single district by memory, you picked 53 Republican pickups, missing only Rostenkowski in downtown Chicago, which none of us thought was plausible. So we ended up at 54. And I think that's part of what struck me, that we didn't have that same feeling for the battlefield this year. And I don't know why. I'm not sure either. I think that the issue cluster for driving voters turned out to be different than we expected, or at least the intensity of issues. Republicans in House campaigns narrowly led Democrats on the most important issue, which was inflation, and jobs in the economy. But we lost big time on the issues of abortion and Republicans being a threat to democracy. And I think part of what caused that was that we didn't have any effective answers that our candidates were making in both television commercials and in public appearances and on digital media for those questions. And those two questions, both abortion and the democracy question, drove younger voters, as well as climate change, which we didn't talk about very much either. So I think we were not on solid ground on the issues. And an interesting piece that I picked up in the public opinion strategies post-election research was for those people who didn't think either party had an effective plan 
for limiting inflation and getting it back under control, we lost that vote by 50%. And usually that would go to the opposition party as opposed to the party in power. But it is one of those things that is reflected. If you can't tell voters what you are for and what you are going to do, they probably have a feeling that you don't know what you're doing. So it's sort of like, yeah, it's bad, but you're not going to make it any better. That's exactly right, which I think we kind of lost the feel of in this election. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Part of what was going on was the Democrats spent something like $44 million boosting candidates backed by Trump in the primaries, unconsciously trying to get the more extreme candidates through so that they would lose the general. I don't remember either party ever being that heavily engaged in the other party's primaries. Do you? Not at all. We sometimes hope for the weaker candidate to be nominated on the Democratic side by their forces of hard left socialist policies. But in fact, we never played around in Democratic campaigns spending money to elect one candidate over the other or to try to elect the weakest Democratic candidate. That was done in Pennsylvania. That was done in Michigan. That was done in Arizona. That was done in Illinois. I think that the most egregious, frankly, is Governor Pritzker and the Democratic Governors Association spent $30 million to defeat the moderate Republican candidate who is the African-American mayor of Aurora, Illinois' second largest city, who was the Republican establishment's candidate's choice for a state senator from Southern Illinois who was virtually unknown by anybody except backed by Trump. As you know, I've followed Illinois politics for years because I grew up there. And some things are even surprising to me that happened in Illinois. And it's kind of fascinating that you're watching Chicago collapse as a city, you're watching businesses leave, you're watching crime out of control, but it doesn't quite seem to break through 
machine is able to withstand reality and to impose its own reality. But the same thing happened in New York City where you have all these problems with crime, and yet the governor got 69% of the vote. Remarkable. And maybe a sign of tribal politics. I mean, I'm not quite sure how you explain it. One of the things which is beyond my comprehension is the scale of money. You know, the first time I ran, I think my 1974 campaign was $85,000. And my second race in 76, I think, was $165,000. This year, apparently, the estimate is the system will have spent on state and federal elections $16.7 billion. Don't you find that just staggering? Yes, I do. Let me just say that I think that the political system right now, as we know it, is awash in money. And if you don't have the ability for paid communication, which is very, very important for Republican candidates, because they are so often beaten down by the news media, that we usually shine later in the campaign when our advertising dollars outspend Democrat advertising dollars. This time, we were horribly outspent in race after race after race, particularly the statewide races for U.S. Senate. And the outside money that came in to campaigns was, on our side, not nearly as great as it needed to be or should have been if we were going to compete effectively in those races. Now, many of them were very close but even in the close races, what you did see was the Democratic candidate and their coalition groups that were spending money in the campaigns to be overwhelmingly, where we were overwhelmingly outspent by the Democrats and their coalitions. I talked to Adam Laxalt during the long count after Election Day, and he said that he had kept up with the incumbent Democratic senator until about two weeks out. And that people sort of seemed to think he'd won. And so his money dried up. And she outspent him the last two weeks by about three to one. And frankly, the amount he lost by was almost certainly to be found in that final assault. On the other hand, one of the things that Republicans have got to really look at is a number of places where people, again, Pennsylvania is a good example, where people came out of a primary. Pennsylvania had a very tough primary. The Republican who came in second, spent $40 million attacking Dr. Oz. When Oz came out of the primary, he had no money. And for about six weeks, he was dark and had no advertising while Fetterman was defining him. And I think that happened in a number of states. And I also think the Republican model of saving up and coming in in October doesn't make sense if people start voting in mid-September. I mean, in, in Pennsylvania, by the time they had a debate, over 600,000 people had voted. Let's just talk about this early voting phenomenon for a moment and versus election day voting. I believe that in the 2022 election, 60% or more of the people had voted prior to election day. And if you have that number of early voting and mail-in voting, you've got to conduct a campaign that works for and works at voters who are voting early and voting by mail. I mean, we used to say, Newt would remember, that it's really important to peak on election day. Now it's important in your campaign to have reached a plateau 
by the time early voting begins and continues at a pulsing rate all the way up until Election Day. The reality of voting is we did pretty well in people that made up their mind in August and September, and we did a little worse than people that were making up their mind in October, and we did a lot worse than people that were making up their mind in the last seven days. You have to be able to do both the mechanics of early voting and the campaigning to early voters to make up that deficit that occurs in the early voting and the mail-in voting cycle because we don't have enough voters who are voting on election day to make that difference. We have to kind of reverse the feeling that you shouldn't vote by mail or that you shouldn't vote early, but rather we need to maximize that as opposed to minimize it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. You have always talked about, as long as I've known you, you've had five factors that you think are sort of the components to any race. Could you talk about those five? Sure. There's five key elements in any campaign. The first and most important element is always the candidate, because people are judging one person against another, and candidate qualities are important as they reach those decisions. And so much relies on the candidate, the candidate picking the team around him, the candidate, he or she, raising money for the campaign, the candidate's ability to attract voters to them personally is critically important. I've always said, and maybe I overstate this a bit for the current strength of parties, but I've always said that candidates are about 75% of the equation in a winning campaign. The second thing is organization. And I think that we really fell down organizationally this time around. Organization is the central nervous system of a campaign. It thinks, it acts, it decides, and it delivers voters. My feeling is that in places where we didn't do as well, particularly in losing incumbent 
members of the House were because we fell down organizationally. We fell down in the voter identification and voter turnout operation. In states where we did well with that, for example, here in Florida, Governor DeSantis talked about his campaign knocking on two million doors. Well, you didn't hear about that going on in many other places. I would say my other favorite state, which is Iowa, where there was a huge victory, not only for the governor, but also a big victory for Chuck Grassley and a big victory in sweeping all four congressional races. And we turned out two 40-year Democratic incumbents in the attorney general's race and in the state treasurer's race. And we got to a two-thirds majority in the state Senate, which means that all of Governor Reynolds' appointments only need Republican approval to be set for boards and commissions in the state and for department heads. But big victories were rolled up not only by good candidates, but strong organization that turned out voters. The third key element is always fundraising and the finance side of it. And while you don't need to have the most money in any campaign, you certainly do have to have an adequate amount of money to get your message out. And being outspent by two to one in campaigns, particularly for Senate and for governor across the country, were a huge detriment to Republican opportunities. And the fourth thing is that you have to have a believable message of contrast with the candidate that you're running against. And their message of contrast on abortion and democracy trumped our message, for the most part, on the economy, inflation, and jobs. The believability of our candidates on those issues, I think, caused us to have this narrowest of election majorities in the U.S. House when you looked at the general political climate and thought, historically, we would do much, much better than that. And finally, the fifth element is how you get to your base of support, and the base is pretty important. And we turned out Republican base voters. I think we lost independent voters or didn't win them nearly as strongly as we had in previous campaigns. For example, in 2010, we won independence by a 20-point margin. In 2022, we won independence by a two-point margin. Can we go back and talk just for a second about Governor Reynolds? Because I know how well you know Iowa, having been the political director there and having been deeply involved with the University of Iowa. It seemed to me that she really grew in office and became a dramatically more effective and more powerful leader than you would have guessed when she first became governor. That is very true. Remember, she was elected by the narrowest margin in the history of Iowa governor's races. In 2018, she was elected by about 24,000 votes over Fred Hubble, the Democratic candidate. She not only came out with strong programs for the state and reforms for the state during her first term, but she was a leader in the fight for school choice in Iowa. This is a very interesting thing. It shows a little bit about choosing your fights and how important they were. There were five Republican state senators who opposed her school choice program. She found candidates to oppose those five incumbent Republican candidates on the school choice issue, and she beat all five of them. She now has two-thirds control of the state Senate, and there's going to be a very strong school choice bill 
passed in the Iowa legislature, probably in the very first part of the session, because we increased numbers in the House of Representatives there as well. But that kind of demonstration of political muscle within your own party and political strength based on an issue rather than based on personality is one of the things that led her to be such a strong candidate for re-election and why she racked up the margin of votes that she actually did. One of the things that struck me, I was so positive about the size of our victory that even having won control of the House and having won governorships by huge margins, it didn't quite feel as good as what I had thought it would. So for the first week, I was a little bit down, as you know, because you and I talked about it. But it seems to me, when you actually look at the results, and you look at us having gained something like three and a half million extra votes for the House, and you look at the size of victories like Iowa and Florida, and then you look at what happened where, compared to 2018, the Hispanic vote for the Republicans jumped 10 points, the Asian vote jumped 17 points, African-American vote jumped about four points. And in fact, I saw one number that suggested that African-American males, 19% had voted for Republicans. I mean, there are underlying patterns there that mean that 2024 could, in fact, be a pretty good year. Well, I totally agree with that. Anytime you can almost double the number of black voters that we receive and increase Hispanic and Asian voters, that means that you are building a more diversified Republican Party. And I think the opportunity with us not controlling both houses of Congress allows a better opportunity to win the presidential election. You will remember we didn't win the presidential election in 1996 after having substantial majorities in both the House and the Senate. And the same was true in 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected, even though we picked up 60-some seats in the House and increased our numbers in the Senate. I think that the future opportunity for Republicans and Republican candidates is very good for the 2024 election cycle. In the Senate, the numbers are clearly on our side. There are 23 Democratic senators up, and I believe like 11 Republican senators have Senate seats up for re-election. So that bodes well. I think the opportunity to increase seats in the House bodes well. Biden is not going to get any more popular. I mean, he's also said, you know, that he made no mistakes and there was nothing wrong in the country while 55% of the people thought he was doing a terrible job and only 41% approved of him. I think they are in a stasis pattern of being as far left as they possibly can, and the country simply isn't there. And it was a presidential campaign that is geared around the things that we've looked at, Newt, and building the new American majority and the opportunity to reach out to conservative Democrats and Republicans generally, as well as increasing our numbers with Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, provides a great opportunity for the party for 2024. How it plays out is yet to be seen, but I'm optimistic about the future. And it struck me, the work we've done on the America's New Majority Project, which people can go to at americasnewmajorityproject.com. The fact is, we have a cultural majority that's huge, but it has not been translated into a political majority. It's one of the fascinating things about where we are right now as a country. The tension between what people believe and what the political system currently reflects 
the power of money and the news media and outside groups, et cetera, I think is going to make the next few years very, very fascinating. And I think that there are going to be huge opportunities for people who are willing, as DeSantis was, and frankly, you look around the country at Republican governors, they were remarkably successful at pulling together the potential cultural majority and turning them into a political majority. And many of them won by very big margins, which I think bodes very, very well for us. And as you said, I think the Democrats will continue to keep going to the left because they're true believers and they got no signals out of this election that they had to change, whereas both Clinton in 94 and Obama in 2010 got messages and both of them said that they had been shellacked. I mean, both of them were very honest the day after the election that they had a lot to learn and they felt a little chagrined. And clearly Biden in his one hour long victory speech didn't think he had to learn a darn thing and didn't plan to learn a darn thing. So it'll be fascinating. Well, I hope that we will be able to continue our partnership. And I hope maybe on occasion you can come back and share more with us as the political season evolves in ways that we currently can't imagine. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Newt, and I'd love to do it. Thank you to my guest, Joe Gaylord. You can read more about the midterm election outcome and analysis on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, and this is Newt's World. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.
Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.